if it's your first time with us again, uh, we're glad to have you. I'm John, one of the pastors here at the church. And uh, before we get started, I just want to read uh, to y'all something that came out of my reading um, a few weeks ago. One of the things that I love about history uh, is that it reminds us that the things that God tells us to hold on to for our hope are actually good and they actually work and the unique places that we find ourselves in don't negate the fact that what God says actually works. So I'm going to read to you this quote. Uh, Jupiter Hammond, a freed black man, wrote this uh, to a group of slaves in 1787. So they're still there. There's no hope on the horizon that they'll be set free. And this is the hope that he gives them. Hear his words. He says this. It's going to be here on the screen. Those of you who can read, I must beg you to read the Bible. And whenever you can get time, study the Bible. And if you can get no other time, spare some of your time from sleep and learn what the mind and will of God is. But what shall I say to them who cannot read? This lay with great weight on my mind when I thought of writing to my poor brethren. But I hope that those who can read will take pity on them and read what I have to say to them. In hopes of this, I will beg of you to spare no pains in trying to learn to read. Let all the time you can be spent in trying to learn to read. The Bible is the word of God and tells you what you must do to please God. It tells you how you may escape misery and be happy forever. If you see most people neglect the Bible... And many that can read, don't look into it. Let it not harden you and make you think lightly of it, that it is a book of no worth. All those who are really good love the Bible and meditate on it day and night. In the Bible, God has told us everything that is necessary that we should know in order to be happy here and hereafter. Now, my dear friends, Seeing the Bible is the word of God and everything in it is true and it reveals such awful and glorious things. What can be more important than that you should learn to read it? And when you have learned to read, that you should study it day and night. That's why the Bible takes such a central place in everything that we do here as a church. So as we read that, I'd ask for you all to stand up and I want to read Psalm 130. That's where we're going to be today. Pay attention to every word as we read. It says this. The words will be on the screen if you don't have it. Out of the depths I call to you, Lord. Lord, listen to my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for help. Lord, if you kept account of iniquities, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness so that you may be revered. I wait for the Lord. I wait and put my hope in his word. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for there is faithful love with the Lord. And with him is redemption in abundance. And he will redeem Israel from all its iniquities. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that uh, there's more mercy in you than there is sin in us. And so we come to you and we plead for your mercy, Father. I pray that it would be the thing that leads us to live lives where you stay at the center. Uh, I pray that it would help us to be faithful to you, Father. Help us to be a group of folks here in this room who leave rejoicing, God. I pray, and you have the power to do this, I pray that nobody would leave out of this room without experiencing your forgiveness and mercy today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, Y'all can take a seat. Um, And as you take a seat, I just want to talk to y'all a bit about where we've been for these past two weeks. We're taking a short two-week break uh, from Thessalonians to talk through a few psalms. So last week, we spent our time and we talked through Psalm 1, and Psalm 1 is God's uh, directions towards happiness. All of us want to be happy in the life that we're in, and God is concerned with that for us, so he tells us 
He tells us the way that we can be happy. And we saw last week that the pathway to joy in this life is paved with the pages of Scripture. There are things in our life that are beyond our control that we really can't control, but there are choices that you and I make each day on which our joy depends. And so last week was all about choose the right way, choose God's pathway. This week is about the fact that nobody's perfect. And because none of us are perfect, what that means is this, is that all of us at some point will make the wrong choice. And here's the thing about not being perfect. It's that when we make the the wrong choice and we're told how to correct the wrong choice that we made, and we have a chance to choose the right choice or the wrong choice, do you know what takes place if you're not perfect? You'll choose the wrong thing again. And you and I have this bad habit of trying to dig ourselves out of our misery and our own strength And the more and more that we try to dig ourselves out with things that God has told us don't please him, the more and more we just dig a deeper pit for us to fall in. And sooner or later, we find ourselves buried in our own misery. There's certain times where you and I find ourselves depressed in life based on things that have gone on with us. We've lost a loved one. We've lost our job. Our spouse leaves. We we fight. There's... There's things that take place in life that take place to us that make us feel very low and depressed. But then there are times in life where we're low and depressed. And the reason why we're low and depressed is not because of anything that anybody has done to us. It's because we've made the wrong choices and they've compounded on us. And we feel like I'm at the rock bottom and I have nobody to blame but myself. Psalm 130 is here for that. It's here for you. If you're here and you said, well, John, that's not me, um, I would say that's not you yet, but you are not perfect. Eventually, it will happen. And if it's not you right now, I guarantee you that you know somebody that it is them. Psalm 130 is a great balm for their soul. I had a professor in school that says this. Education is like a time bomb that's set to go off at a later date. Even if it doesn't directly apply to you right now, you will need it. And that's the beauty of God's word. Store it away. If you feel that you're too far gone, if you feel like you have self-sabotaged your life because of the choices that you've made, I want you to know it's not over. There's hope. God's greatest treasures are often buried in our deepest sorrows. That's what this psalm is. Uh, So turn with me if you have been already to Psalm 130. Uh, If you go to the book of Psalms, Psalm 120 to Psalm 134 uh, are what's called the Psalms of Ascent. And what that is is scholars believe that Jews on their way up to Jerusalem or priests that were on their way up the steps of the temple to meet with God as they would go up and approach God, that this is their soundtrack. Psalm 120 to Psalm 134, all of these, is this is the soundtrack for everybody that's in a low place that wants to find themselves in a high place. That's what this psalm is for. And so what I want to do today is I just want to give you four steps from getting out of your self-inflicted misery to find yourself back in the joyful place that God wants us to be. Four steps. The four are, if you're going to take notes, cry, fear, hold on, and shout. Cry, fear, hold on, and shout. Verse 1 and 2. Cry, hear hear this, he he says this, out of the depths I call to you, Lord. Lord, listen to my voice, let your ears be attentive to my cry 
for help. What you see here is somebody that's come to the end of themselves and have said, there's nobody else to blame for where I am but me, and I don't need one more chance. I need somebody to help me get out of this. He owns where he is. He calls where he is the depths. God, I'm here, I'm low, and I'm just going to be frank about where I am. He doesn't feel like he has to hide it. He cries out to God, and not only does he own the place that he's in, but he owns the solution. The only solution that he has to get out is not him trying to work hard. He's saying, God, I need your help. If you don't help me, I'm not going to get out of this. This is what the Bible talks about when it says that all of us have to come to God as children. Don't think of like four-year-olds that if they cry out, it's, you know what to do. Go get the breakfast from the pantry and leave me alone. It's like three months old. Yeah, I got a daughter at the house right now who I talk about every time that I'm up here because she is the cutest baby in the world. But what we found out... um is she can't do anything for herself. If she needs anything, do you know the only tool that she has in her belt? Crying, yeah. All she does is cry when, when, when she needs something. And so she'll sit back and she'll cry out and, she'll, and in her cries, it's saying, mom and dad, if you don't come and put this pacifier in my mouth, I will die. Mom and dad, if you don't come and change my diaper, I will die. The only tool that she has in her belt is crying. She waves her hand and she flings her feet. But all she can do is cry. This psalm right here is inviting you and I as children of God to do the same thing. This psalm is not a psalm of self-help. This is a psalm of desperation, crying out to God for help. And I just want to start off and tell you this. God is used to hearing from people that desperately need him. Even if it's their last resort, even if you tried all that you could and you felt like it all failed and now I'm going to cry out to God and you're discouraged, I want you to know don't be discouraged. God is used to this. Maybe you're here and you haven't prayed to God in a while and you feel that he'd feel some kind of way if you haven't talked to him and now you cry out to him and ask him for help. And I want you to know that's not how he feels. God has not turned his porch light off so that you wouldn't approach. Psalms 130 is God turning on the porch light and saying, for all those that feel like they're in these depths, you can come and cry out to me. The main point of this text the main point of our time today is this, is that God offers his mercy to lift us out of our misery. God offers it. It's his idea. The porch light is on. Don't be concerned about how long it's been since your last words were spoken to God. Every restored relationship begins with first words, and even if your first word is a cry for help, God hears that. So be honest with where you are. Be honest with what you need. Be heard. Let the depths of your sorrow lead you to cry out from the bottom of your heart. As I say all of that, and that'll be the main place where we say, let me just say this as a disclaimer. Although God does hear us in the most frustrating of times, uh, he also hears us when times are good. So don't let, like, don't waste your prosperity. Don't waste the good times and not talk to God. Prayer may be born in the most desperate of times, but this warmth that we have towards God can grow in the best of times. So don't wait until your marriage is about to fall apart to pray with your spouse. Don't wait until your kids are wilding out before you sit down and pray with them. Don't wait until you and your roommates are frustrated before you actually take time and sit and pray together. What God does is he gives us times like this. 
Right? This is the importance of each week when we gather, hearing about the great things that God has done. We read his word and we pray. Like These are coals that are meant to warm our hearts. Trials, that's gasoline that's thrown on a fire. And it may make this, this big flame, but it dies out quickly. This time that we have here each week are the coals that God gives us to keep things nice and warm. So don't neglect this time. Cry out to God. The very first step to be lifted up out of the despair that we find ourselves in is to cry. Be honest with where you are and speak frankly and freely to God and be heard. The next step in verse 3 and 4 Um, it is a step up, but it feels like a step down. Next step here is fear. Your cry for help, cries for help, are only really as good as the trustworthiness of the person that cries for help. Have you ever had somebody ask you for money and you know that they have a track record of squandering money that you give to them? And you say, I can't help you because I know that you're just going to waste this. As David is getting ready to plead to, to God for help, look at this, this fear that he has. Verse 3, Lord, if you kept an account of iniquities, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness so that you may be revered. David starts off and he says this, God, if you actually kept an account of all the wrong things that were done, everybody would be disqualified to ask for help. David's not saying this because he's saying God doesn't keep track of it. He's saying it to bring up the fact in all of our hearts that God does. God, if you kept an account, God does keep an account. We forget things all of the time. Our minds are wired to forget things that are unimportant so that we can take in new information. So if you were curious why algebra, though it was steeped in your system in the eighth grade, and you go to the grocery store and it's hard for you to to determine what's 15% off of $5, it's because our brains are geared to forget things. God doesn't forget things. God doesn't watch his diet and eat foods that are good for his brain to prevent Alzheimer's later. God remembers everything. God keeps a perfect account, not just of the things that we've done, but the things that we've thought and haven't done. The deleted text exchange the way that we got so frustrated and mad and rattled something off and saved it to our draft folder and it's still there, it has not been sent. But the anger that we felt in our heart, God keeps a perfect account of all of those things. And what he's saying is, God, if you actually kept an account, which he does, who could stand? Nobody. Who could have the audacity to ask him for help? Nobody. And this is where this fear comes from. It's like somebody cheating on their taxes for years and then approaching the IRS for a loan. That the person that you go to is not obligated to show you mercy. The person that you go to is obligated to enforce justice. And this is what makes crying out to God for help something that's so hard because this God is not obligated to show anybody mercy. He's obligated to show justice. Verse 4, it does lead us into a hopeful note, but with you there is forgiveness, but it also reminds us that the only place that we can go to for forgiveness is God in that You can only ask for forgiveness from the person that you have offended. 
If somebody were to punch me in the face and ask my wife for forgiveness and she grants it, I would say you are misinformed, friend. (laughs) You didn't hit her, you hit me. So regardless of what she says, I'm the only one that can provide the, the forgiveness that you hope for. David here is saying that there is something to fear. That the only one that can provide the forgiveness, the help that I want, is the very person that is obligated to show me justice. Have you ever thought about that? That God has absolutely no reason to forgive your sins at all. You may say, well, but I've made the resolve that I'm not going to do it again. And the Bible would say, well, your resolve is worthless because you've said that I'm not going to do it again. And you did it again. And, or, or you may say, well, it was an accident. I promise I'm not going to make that mistake again. Well, God knows our hearts. And he knows that those misplaced words or those words that you spoke harshly that you said at the end, I didn't mean to say that. He knows, well, you did mean to say that. You're just saying that you didn't mean it because once you said it and you hurt that person that you loved, it didn't bring you the fulfillment that you hoped for. And now you want to take it back, but you can't. You may say, well, God should forgive me of my sins because the circumstances that I'm in, things have gone so bad in my life that I had no choice. And that would be true, except for the fact that we don't just sin in desperate circumstances. We sin in delightful ones as well. That when times are hard, it's easy for us to blame God and to turn our back on him. But when times are good, it's easy for us to praise ourselves and forget that God is the reason that these things were good. So there's nothing inside of us that that would force God to forgive us. But I want you to know this as well. There is nothing God needs that would make him forgive us as well. Yeah, I've got a very, very good friend um, and his spouse is terrified of flying. Uh, And so what he found out early on in their marriage is this, that they would get into fights, but the closer and closer that they got to a flight, um, he found that she was quicker to resolve the conflict because she needed him on the airplane. Listen, if God is really self-sufficient, then do you know what that means? God doesn't need you. God doesn't need us. So there is never a time where he's motivated to forgive because he he needs us. And so what he's saying is, God, I'm in the depths because of the things that I've done wrong. You're the only one that can help me. You're the only person that forgiveness is found. And you have absolutely no reason to show me forgiveness. And this is where the promise is so sweet. This is where in in verse 4 he says this, but with you there is forgiveness. Why? So that you may be revered. Based on the translation you have, that last word there, may be fear. And I think that revered is a better word, right? When uh, So they, they both mean the same thing, but sometimes when fear is there and it's linked with forgiveness, it can give us the wrong impression on what's being communicated. I.e., if you have a car that you're paying notes on and you don't pay your car notes, you have a debt that is unpaid, and do you know who you fear? The repo man. Because you know that he's going to come, right? But if somebody pays your debt, you have no fear of him anymore. Why? Because your relationship with him is done. You, you don't even think of, about him. You're free, right? That's not what's being said here when God, for, God doesn't forgive us our sins to remove fear in that way. It's actually the forgiveness of our debt that leads to this greater fear, this greater sense of reverence. 
Why? Because you and I owe this great debt to God. We've sinned against him. You and I owe him our lives. God has come through and he has forgiven our debt in the person of Jesus. So Jesus comes on the scene, right? And we look here and says, God, if you kept track of sins, who could stand? No one except for Jesus. Jesus lives this life. He goes to the cross and he purchases our freedom and our forgiveness with his life. It was costly. It cost him something. God is not paying for our sins out of spare change that he has in our pockets. Jesus, who was God himself, paid for all of our sins, people that are untrustworthy and dependable with his very life. And so now as we think about the fact that we've been forgiven of our sins, it doesn't lead us to say, I've been forgiven, now I can live how I want to. It leads us to say, I've been forgiven. It cost him his life. It was costly. So now the rest of my life is spent revolving around what God has done. I constantly think of him. Every time that I think of my sin, and I'm reminded that my sin has earned me an eternity separated from God, I can be reminded that God has offered his mercy freely in Christ. And I can realize that in the same way I had something to fear in crying out to God for help, now because of what Christ has done, I have absolutely nothing to fear in crying out to God for help. And that doesn't make me forget about God. It makes me enjoy him more. Forgiveness has not ended the relationship that I have with him. Forgiveness has actually been the pathway for me to really enjoy the relationship that I should have with him, a life that is spent revolving around what God has done. It changes our posture. It gives us a transformed life. The first step to getting out of the misery that we find ourselves in is to cry out to God, to be honest, to be heard. The next step is to fear. It's to plant our feet in the right place, to be reminded that we do have something to fear because none of us have the moral character or platform to cry out to God for help, but yet God has freely offered his mercy towards us. Here's the third step that we hold on, that we wait. Look here at verse 5 and 6. I wait for the Lord. I wait and put my hope in his word. I wait for the Lord. More than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. That word wait in the original language, it has the same root word as hope. Right? So both of those mean the the same thing, that this concept of waiting is this. It's meant to contrast working. When it comes to our forgiveness, do you know what you and I don't do? We don't work for it. We don't tell God, this is what I'm going to do to be back in right standing with you. We don't say, God, I want to outweigh my bad deeds with good deeds, so from this point on, I promise that I'm not going to do that, and I'm going to give the rest of my life to become a nun and to work at the salvation. Like, we don't do that. We don't bargain with God. What he's saying here is that we hold on in the same way that somebody that's stuck at the bottom of a well that has no arms cries out for somebody to tie a rope, to throw a rope down. And it's not we grab on to God's rope and climb out. It's I need you to put a loop at the end of this rope and wrap me around and just pull me up. And I'm going to hold on to this hope. Here's why I think that he means that. Verse 5. All right. When, when you come to the Psalms, Hebrew poetry isn't based on uh, rhyme sometimes the way that ours is. It's based on what's called parallelism. So you'll have one line and then you'll have the next line. And the next line sometimes helps to 
to complete the, the thought of the first line, right? So line two will accent the thought of the first line. It'll complete the thought or it'll contrast the thought. So when he says, I'll wait, it's not him saying, all right, I'm just going to sit back and wait to see what God does. But he says this, I will wait for the Lord. And then he goes here, I will wait and put my hope in his word. What word? It's the word that God speaks about himself. It's going to be on the screen here. Exodus 34. Moses talks to God face to face, and he says, God, I want to see you. I want to know you. Tell me what you're like. And this is how God describes himself. And this is the phrase about God that's repeated time and again throughout the Old Testament. And here, what it says here, verse 6, the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. What we see there is both the mercy and the judgment of God, but as God is proclaiming who he is, do you know what he leads off with? His forgiveness, his mercy. This is a God that's saying, right, he's not going to leave the guilty unpunished, but what leads the way is that God is a forgiving God. Forgiveness is not his obligation, but forgiveness is his idea. Nobody can plead to God for forgiveness. Before God created the world, God created a host of angels. Angels turned and rebelled against God, and there was no forgiveness offered to them, and God was still as perfect and true as he is. But as God gives his word to humanity, to us, to people who made the wrong choices and found ourselves trapped in this despair, this word that he's going to hold on to is the fact that forgiveness is not something that I'm pleading for. Forgiveness is not something that I'm trying to convince God to give me. But forgiveness as as a result of repentance is a key that God has left for us. The best way that I can think to explain this is uh, just trying to help us understand how the Bible was put together. Most of us, when we read the Bible, uh, we kind of read it like a story, like we would watch a movie, right? So Genesis 1 and 2, things are great. And then in 3, like things go bad and they mess up. And it's this detour towards God's plan. And now God has to rewrite the whole thing, right? Like, Fast and the furious where in what? Part seven, Paul Walker dies halfway through the movie. Um, And so what they have to do is they don't just rewrite that one, but they have to rewrite the whole franchise. Like they're signed on for like three more. Um, So now with the main guy that's died, they're like, ah, this really threw a train wreck in what we were trying to do. So now let's rewrite the whole thing. Let's get his brother as a body double. Let's change the story, and we'll get to where we're trying to go. That's not what happened with the Bible and with God's plan. It's not as if, like, God started to write and said, all right, we're going to lay this out. Humanity's going to be here, and they're all good, and things are good. Jesus, did you close the gate to make sure that no snakes get in? All right, good. Um, Things are great, and then they get to a point to where it's like, Adam messed up. Who left the tree in the middle? Who let the snakes in? All right, uh, we're going to have to change this. Jesus, uh, we're going to need you to go down and die for them, and this is the plan, And but it's all good. We'll kind of work this thing out, and it'll all turn out fine in the end. Listen, Genesis chapter 3 and sin was not a detour in God's plan. It is a straight line. So much so that when Ephesians 
talks about God and Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, it describes him as the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the earth so that you and I would know that this was God's plan all along. If God just wanted to show his justice, he could have well done that in the way that he dealt with the angels. But in creating humanity, do you know what God wanted to show? His mercy and his forgiveness. This is a straight line. This is God's plan. This has always been his plan through the ages, so much so that Ephesians chapter 3 verse 10 tells us that God has created this church so that throughout all eternity, he would be able to put us up on display and say, look at how dope I am by the way that I forgive and offer this mercy. Crying out for God's mercy is not your idea. It's his. It always has been. Listen, and the reason why he's communicated that to all of us is so that it would serve as an invitation for anybody that feels like I've gone too far. I've messed up too much. I'm buried in the misery that I'm in. What David's saying is this. No, I'm not going to work for God's forgiveness. I'm just going to hold on to his word and the fact that this was his plan for the beginning. And in some strange way, all the mistakes that I've made, the sin that I've done that brought me in this depth is going to be what God uses to display the greatness of his love that displays it to all creation, but that makes my heart sing and leap for joy. But he doesn't stop there. Verse six, he tells us how it is that we are to wait. He says this, I wait for the Lord. Remember, parallelism. It clarifies what he means. How does he wait? More than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. What he's saying is this, I wait for the Lord in the same way that a guy that works the third shift waits for the sun to come up. He's not saying, I hope that the sun rises today. What he's saying is it's only a matter of time until the sun rises. And once it rises, I'm free from the burden of packing up these boxes at Walmart. What he's saying here is as I think about the mercy of God and the misery that I find myself in, and I cry out to God for help, I don't have to wonder if he's going to change things, but I just hope and I have to wait that sooner or later the sun will rise and I'll be free from the sin that distances me from God. Not if, but when Shane and I were reading this text this week and he said that this is that Christians don't hope in a better day to come but in Christ who already came. We are confident that in the same way that God raised him from the dead, from the tomb, that God will do the same thing to all of us that cry out to him for help. God offers mercy for those of us to lift us up out of our misery. This is the good news that I have for you today. And I want you to know this, that if you're a Christian in here, Christians have always been waiting people. We cry out to God for help. God says that he'll help us and he gives us his word before he finishes his work. Genesis chapter three, verse 15, after Adam and Eve sinned, God says, I'm going to set things right. But until I do, just hold on to, to this word. Hold on to the same word that created the the world. You can trust in it. Hold on. And they waited. Abraham waited 25 years for God to bring him the child that he promised. But he got the child that he promised. Jacob had a vision of leading and waited 13 years for God to fill that out. David got the same anointing to be king, and he had to wait 13 years for it to be brought about. Israel is waiting for a Messiah from the time of Genesis 3.15, and they finally get him in Jesus after waiting. Then Jesus dies and promises that he'll come back, and the disciples wait for three days. 
He raises from the dead and they say, yo, God, is this going to be the time that you bring things out? And he says, wait. And you and I that plead to God for his mercy, for forgiveness, for a renewed heart, for a changed heart, we hold on to his word even if in the interim it seems like nothing's changing. But we keep on crying, we keep on pleading, not because it's our idea, but because it's his. Is this where you've put your hope in for forgiveness? As you think about the despair that you may have found yourself in because of things that you inflicted on yourself, are you somebody that is on your knees daily crying and pleading to God for this type of forgiveness? Or are you passively throwing up prayers and spending the rest of your time trying to earn it? Are you passively throwing up prayers and making excuses for why things aren't the way that you hoped that that they would be? Are you spending your time trying to win God's love back? Are you spending your time trying to self-medicate on the very sin that caused you that grief in the first place? I only have good news for you. And based on this, you don't have to do any of that. You cry out to God for his mercy. You ask for God to change you, to change your heart. You remind yourself, even when things don't look like they're changing, this is not my idea, this is his. I can hold on to it because everybody that has ever prayed to God for anything has had to wait. So my waiting is not a break from the norm. My waiting is par for the course. God's word reminds us that he's concerned about our well-being. So in our waiting, we don't have to be weary. We wait as those with hopeful expectation, like the guy from the third shift waiting on the sun to rise. And what I love about the way that this ends is that it starts with a cry. We see what we're to fear. We're reminded of what we have to hold on to, but it ends with a shout. Look here, Psalms uh, 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 verses one through six have been all about him, him, him. Lord, I need this. But in verse seven, it says this, Israel, now he points outward. Put your hope in the Lord. For there is faithful love with the Lord and with him is redemption in abundance and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. What he does here is he starts off and after apprehending this truth for himself, the only logical thing that he can think to to do is to get as big of a platform that he can and cry out to everybody that will hear, there's forgiveness that's found with God. It's a proclamation, and not just a proclamation, but verse 8 says that it's a promise. He will redeem Israel from all their iniquities, every one of them, and he keeps count. God's promise to fully forgive us for all of our sins is not an empty promise. He never gets in over his head. Uh, when, when I was in high school, uh, I went to prom with this girl and, and trying to impress her, I took her to this fancy restaurant and as we sat down, yeah, I'll never forget it, she ordered the salmon. Um, there, there was no price there. It had market rate. And so I'm like, yo, get whatever you want. That's on me. Um, she didn't eat at all And then that bill came, and it was like, um, I actually don't have enough money to pay for all of our uh, food. But I had my card back then, and back then, you know, I swiped the card, and I knew that Wells Fargo would charge me the $33, like, fee, but I didn't want her to know that. And it's, I, I told her to get what she wanted, but I couldn't pay for it all. What he's saying right here is, listen, 
God has set the market rate for the price of sin. Not just for your sin, but for everybody's sin. He knows how much it costs. And there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. There is nothing, there is no amount of sin that will bankrupt him or cause him to overdraft. David realizes this, and what he says is this, this is too good for me to keep to myself. Anybody that has experienced the forgiveness of God spends their time shouting it out to everybody else because they know so many other people have this debt that they're trying to pay themselves. They have this ditch of misery that they've dug themselves in trying to climb out. And what we say is this, no, y'all, like, you don't have to work. Just hold on to God's hope. All of those that cry out to him for mercy receive mercy and pardon from the misery that they found themselves in. Not just is it too good not to share, but he looks and it's too true not to personally apply to everybody. So what he does right here is he calls out an entire nation because he says there is nobody that is not in need of this mercy that God offers. This is the free, the full forgiveness that God provides for all of us. He's offered it. You don't have to order it on the menu and wait for him to prepare it. It's like the chips and salsa that come out as soon as you sit down and you can, you can reject it. <laughs> Y'all hungry. Yeah, I haven't even gotten off my time yet. Listen. Listen, you can accept it or reject it, but it's offered to all of us. And here's one of the ways that we as Christians can know if this is really taking root in our heart. If you've really experienced the mercy of God, the free mercy of God that's provided to all of us in Christ because of our sin, it will be incredibly hard for you to hold a grudge against somebody else. David here is shouting to everybody that he knows, telling them of this free forgiveness that's found in God. What kind of sense does that make to tell anybody, regardless of what they've done, that they can come to God for forgiveness free of charge, but you've really got to work to be back on good terms with me. We can't do that. But the hallmark of somebody is that they herald, they speak freely about this forgiveness to everybody. And one of the clearest ways that it can be shown is the way that you and I as Christians forgive the offenses that will come our way because nobody's perfect. Ask yourself this. If God required of you what you required of people that have offended you in order to be forgiven, would it draw you to God or would it make you bitter and hard-hearted? Listen, bitterness isn't pleasant. Listen, Jesus already drank the bitter cup of unforgiveness so that you and I don't have to. Have you ever been mad at somebody? I mean, fighting mad. And they tell a joke or, and you start to laugh because you forget how mad that you are and the relationship is restored. But then you remember that you're mad and you try hard not to laugh like, now nah, I really wanted to be mad at you. That's not appeal. That's not delightful. That's not the pathway that God gives us to be happy in this world. The model that he lays out is unspeakable offenses done against him, yet he offers forgiveness proactively to make the way for the relationship to be restored. And it goes both ways. We rejoice in the fact that we're restored to God. And Luke 15 says that God himself rejoices because he has his back. As we forgive one another, especially in the context of a church, 
that's young, where so many new kids are being born, where there's a bunch of folks sleepless at night, easily perturbed and offended, people that are new just getting to know one another, misspeaking and not saying the right thing. This free mercy and forgiveness that we have in God is meant for us to enjoy, but it's meant to transform us so that we extend the same thing to a community. What is more attractive than a community that forgives? God's mercy is freely offered to lift us out of our misery. This is the promise that we have here in God's word. This is what we hold on to. This is what we share to people that have found themselves captured and buried in sin. So what do we do with this? Three things. One, don't be afraid. God knows right where you are. Don't think about how long it's been since you've spent your last words with him. Your first words can be, Lord, help, hear my prayer. Two, give it away. As freely as you've received the forgiveness of God, pray that he would work on your heart so that you can give that away with your spouses, with your friends, with complete strangers that say the wrong thing to you and do the wrong thing each time. I said I had three things, but I really only have two. With us, there's sin, but with God, well, with us, there's sin, and there's an abundance of it, but with God, there is mercy, and it's offered freely for all of us that would turn from our sins and repent. We can experience that mercy in Christ, and then we can shout and invite everybody else to take part of it, and that's what we're preparing to do here as we end with baptism. Y'all are going to hear a few stories of people who are drowning in their own misery, and cried out to God for mercy. They held on to that truth and they found it. And now they want to use God's ordained means to the church to shout that in order to invite anybody else that finds themselves down there. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you for the free mercy and the abundance of it that's found in Christ. Lord, I pray that you would make us sensible people who don't try to carry it on our own, but who freely offer it to you, Father. I pray that when people offend us, that we would be quicker to shout out about how you've forgiven them completely, how their sin is first and foremost against you, not us, and as sure as you have forgiven them, Father, I pray that you would give us the grace to be able to do the same thing. Help us to be those that trust in your word and wait eagerly uh, for the day when Uh, you come and make things right, and we won't have to forgive anybody because you will have removed the capacity of sin from us, Father. We long for that day. Help us to live lives relationally here and now that reflect that hope that we have. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.